It has been a privilege worshiping with you all on the Lord's Day through song, scripture reading, through confession, through baptism, and so forth. Now we have the opportunity to open up God's Word and to look at a text of scripture together. So if you would, take your Bibles and open them up to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Our text this morning is Isaiah 11, 1 to 9. I am going to read the final two verses of chapter 10, just to build a little context. And so you can look at chapter 10, verse 33 with me. But our text proper will be Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Another passage of scripture that we've chosen to use throughout Advent season and uh, next week, Christmas Eve, we plan on being in Isaiah as well as we do Christmas morning. And so it's been an Isaiah Advent season, and it will be an Isaiah Christmas. And then our attention, uh, if the Lord so pleases, at the beginning of the year, we'll turn to the book of Acts, and we'll begin to walk through the book of Acts chapter by chapter together, and that may take just a few months or so. And uh, we'll get through Acts. A few does mean three or more, just to be clear in that context. Isaiah chapter 11, but we're going to read chapter 10, verses 33 and 34 to start us off. Because this is the word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's day. If you are able, would you please stand? Isaiah writes as he's carried along. By God's Spirit, these words, beginning in chapter 10, verse 33, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height he will, rather will be, hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. As the waters cover the sea. The grass withers. And the flowers indeed fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. We purchased the home in which we currently live approximately two years ago. When we purchased it, there were a few stumps left in the yard where trees once stood. I have seen pictures of the house actually when these trees were still Standing, One of these stumps sits right in the middle of our front flower bed. Quite convenient. 
It wasn't long after we had purchased the home that I noticed that out of this stump appeared a shoot or a sprout, some sign of life that was springing out of the stump. Now, I have very little knowledge of trees. After all, I am from a portion of Texas where it felt more likely that I would grow a large rock for shade (laughs) than it felt like I would grow a tree for shade. But what I do know is that this new sprout was a sign of life out of what appeared to me to be a signal of lifelessness, of death. And this is precisely the image that the prophet Isaiah uses in Isaiah chapter 11 to introduce us to God's promise for future life out of what appeared to be only lifelessness, only death. And it may serve us briefly to summarize Isaiah, the first few chapters, as we approach our text this morning. In chapter 8, Isaiah prophesied God's fierce judgment against disobedient Israel. Israel was spiritually dead and spiritually blind. And the irony of this was that in part, this was their own choosing. As we observed last Lord's Day from Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah 9 consisted of God's promise to rescue his people out of their spiritual anguish through the birth of a son who would reign over God's forever kingdom as God's chosen king in fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God promises to David to sit on David's throne forever, one of David's Sons, And so God promised this back in Isaiah chapter 9. Then in Isaiah chapter 10, God promises Israel that his judgment against them through the nation of Assyria, this was the nation God would use, this, this pagan nation that God would use as an instrument of his judgment against his people, he promises Israel that this judgment through Assyria would in fact be temporary. There was an expiration on Assyria's success. In fact, he tells Israel that the reason Assyria's success would expire or terminate was on account of Assyria's arrogance. You see, Assyria is described throughout chapter 10 as simply the rod of God's anger. In fact, I believe it's verse 15 of Isaiah 10. You can check me on that, but Isaiah 10 verse 15 where God describes Assyria as the axe he wields. The other nations are trees. And if Assyria defeats any nation, including Israel, it is only on account of the sovereign Lord over heaven and earth who wields, chooses to wield Assyria. A nation rises and a nation falls under God's sovereign counsel. And this happens throughout Isaiah and it becomes apparent in Isaiah chapter 10. At the conclusion of Isaiah 10, we're still just building a little context, we find the image, and this is why I read the final couple of verses, we find the image of what was once a forest of nations. Israel was one of those trees in the forest. Assyria The rod of God's anger was one of those trees in the forest. And this forest of nations is now lopped down and left as a collection of stumps. So imagine the imagery. It's vivid and pointed. No more trees left in the field that was once a forest. And this is where Isaiah 11 picks up. Here, Beginning in verse one, God promises that after Israel is brought low, after they have been hewn down by God, remember this, it's not finally Assyria that judges Israel, it's God employing Assyria. After they've been brought low and left as a stump, God promises that there would be a sign of life that would again return. In the form of a king, in the form of a king, in the royal lineage 
of Jesse, King David's father. And we're going to look at that here in just a moment. So that's the context for us since we're not walking through the book of Isaiah verse by verse. Perhaps it's helpful that we've given a little context. If you're taking notes, you can jot these three points down. We're going to unpack this text in three stages. First of all, we're going to look together at what I'm just calling the king. The king in verse one. We'll also use verse 10. I couldn't unpack verse one without also talking a little bit about verse 10, and perhaps you'll see why in just a few moments. So we're going to look together at the king in verse 1 and verse 10. Secondly, we will identify and examine the king's reign or rule. First, the king, then the king's reign in verses 2 through 5. And finally, after looking together at the king and the king's reign or rule, if you like, we will highlight the king's kingdom in verses 6 through 9. The king, the king's reign, and then finally the king's kingdom. Let's begin by looking together at the king. Notice verse one with me. Your Bibles are open. Look down at the text. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now just looking at a couple of the details here, we do know that Isaiah is speaking about a coming king for a couple of reasons. One, I've already mentioned this to you back in chapter nine, he's already promised that the hope for Israel in the midst of God's judgment is the birth of a son who would reign as king. So we know that already as we're working through Isaiah. So by the time we arrive at Isaiah chapter 11, we know that God's promise will take the form of a king. But we also know from this text in particular that this promise will take the form of a king because Isaiah 11 verse one speaks in this way, a shoot a shoot from the stump of Jesse will spring forth. And I mentioned this a moment ago. Some of you may know your Old Testament stories and texts. Others of you may not. I came to Christ. I did not know anything about what the Old Testament taught. So I don't want to take this for granted. Jesse, Jesse was the father of King David. And so this is another way of saying the one who was to come, this this shoot or this branch will be within the royal lineage, the regal lineage of Jesse and of David. Now, the only one, this is interesting, however, the only one throughout the Old Testament that is consistently described as coming from Jesse is David himself. Usually, usually when the Old Testament authors are describing the coming king, they'll use the language of David from the line of David. But here, Isaiah chooses to use, and he is driven to use by the Spirit of God, the language of of being from Jesse. Why is that? Well, I think it's because this this coming king is going to be a kind of new and better David himself. This will be a better David, a new King David. Notice also that in addition to being a shoot from Jesse's lineage, Isaiah describes him in verse one, part B, as a branch. You see that? A branch from Jesse. His, that is Jesse's roots. Now the word used here for branch, I don't oftentimes use Hebrew words in the pulpit. Sometimes I do. Perhaps it's helpful here. I don't know, maybe not. The Hebrew word is netzer. Netzer. And, and I, I mention that word not simply to appear more learned than I am or more intelligent than I am. I use this word because there's a parallel and I think you may see it when I mention this. This word is significant in the New Testament. Now hear the word netzer. In Matthew chapter two, verse 23, Matthew writes concerning Jesus these words. And he, that is Jesus, went and lived in a city called Netzaret, or Nazareth. Nazareth. Netzer. Nazareth just means branch town. Branchtown. And then Matthew goes on to say, why did he do this? So that what was spoken by the prophets, plural, might be fulfilled. That he would be called a Nazarene. And, and, and commentators have searched frantically. Where does the Old Testament promise Jesus would be a Nazarene, a branch man? 
One of the passages to which Matthew is referring, I believe, is likely Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There's another passage, Zechariah chapter 6. You can jot this down. We're not going to turn to it and look at it. But Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12 is also another passage. But Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 is one of the passages I think Matthew is referring to where, where Jesus is called a netzer, a branch from Jesse. I had a, had a professor from college when I went out to the master's college, now the master's university in Santa Clarita, California. The, the professor with whom I recently conversed via email, not about this at all, something unrelated to this, Dr. Will Varner. Dr. Varner used to call Jesus, I'll never forget this, the branch man from Branchtown. The branch man from Branchtown, the Nazarene from Nazareth, right here out of a out of Isaiah chapter 11, verse one. So the king promised in Isaiah 11 would be the shoot, this new growth, and the branch, the netzer from Jesse. But I want you to glance over at verse 10a. You need to see this, or else we're really only getting half the picture, half the portrait. Chapter 11, verse 10, part a I toyed with preaching through verse 11. We're not doing it. Perhaps I'll regret it. We'll see. But verse 10, the very first part, where we learn a bit more about the nature of this king, this coming king, whom we know now is Jesus. Notice the text. In that day, the what of Jesse? The root. Not the, sh- not the shoot. Not the shoot of Jesse here. Not a branch from Jesse's root or the root of Jesse. He himself here in verse 10, interestingly enough, is described as the root. So the king is called the shoot of Jesse. That is, he's descended from David's lineage, as any other human being would be descended from David down the line. That's verse one, but here he's the root of Jesse, which is to say he's the source of David's lineage. Some of you know where we're going. Consider Revelation 22, verse 16, where Jesus just makes it clear. I love this. You know, the New Testament at times just helps us interpret these Old Testament texts so explicitly and overtly. And Revelation 22, verse 16 is one of those texts. In Revelation twenty two sixteen, 16, Jesus says these words, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. The bride and morning star. In case you're wondering, I am the fulfillment of Isaiah 11.1 1 and Isaiah 11.10. I descended from David according to my humanity. I am the root or the source of David according to my deity. I am both truly human and truly God. As one person. I really have to guard against stepping too far off the path right now. But again, you know, sometimes just to be a little bit off the path is okay. There is a narrative in the broader culture that wants to argue that early Christian creeds and councils invented Christian orthodoxy. Doctrines like Jesus is truly human, truly God, and one person, by the way, which is a summary of a council that met, this isn't a history lesson, maybe it is a little bit, a doctrine that was articulated at a council named Chalcedon in 451. When in fact, what these councils were, were just articulations of what the church had always believed and taught. Why did the church always believe and teach these things? Because of what Scripture teaches. And so Chalcedon just becomes in 451 AD a summary of a text like Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 10. 
Jesus is. And we taught, our, we taught our children to do it in this way. We would teach our children Jesus is truly human, truly God in one person. Right here in the text, our King, our Savior, our Lord is able to represent us as, as the best of humans, right? As the human for us. But he's also able to pay the penalty, to pay an infinite debt, an infinite ransom, because he is truly God. And all this gets really close. This gets really close to our salvation, as as a later author would say in the 11th century when describing why it's so important that Jesus be truly human, truly God. Why he can't be half human, half God. Why is it that Christ must be truly human, truly God? One of the reasons, of course, is that scripture teaches this, but this author in the 11th century said, because when we consider our need for rescue, our need for a ransom, our need for someone to rescue us out of sin, death, and hell, only a human should do it. Only God could do it. Therefore, it's necessary that our Savior be both truly human and truly God for us. That's the promise of Isaiah chapter 11. Fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, let's keep moving. What do we learn about the king? Let me summarize this for us and move on to point two. He is, according to Isaiah, both the shoot from Jesse and the root of Jesse. He's both descended from David and he's the sovereign Lord over David. Second, let's look together at the king's reign in verse two and we'll move through these verses fairly quickly. Verse two, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That is, this king will be endowed by the spirit of the Lord and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And and these are just, by the way, descriptions of the same spirit. These are activities of the spirit, gifts of the spirit, movements of the spirit. The Spirit is the one who grants wisdom and grants understanding and grants counsel and grants might and grants knowledge and grants the fear of the Lord, which is another way of saying, grants the posture of humble obedience to God. This is all the work of the Spirit. And so the coming King, and now we could just say it, Jesus, his reign would be characterized by the presence of the Spirit. This promise that the coming king over Israel would be empowered by the Holy Spirit is not unique to Isaiah chapter 11. We find, we find a similar promise in Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61 verse one reads in this way, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. So the spirit is upon me and that spirit has empowered me and anointed me to proclaim the good news To the poor, he continues, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, and so forth. And then in Luke chapter 4, just kind of jumping around a little bit to put all this together, Luke chapter 4, Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah 61, which is very similar to Isaiah 11, verse 2. And he reads this portion concerning the presence of the Spirit. And then he concludes his reading with these controversial words. Controversial in the synagogue, that is. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am the one about whom Isaiah prophesied. I am God's king who would reign by the power of the Holy Spirit. The activity of Christ from his incarnation through his exaltation was immersed and fueled by the presence of the Spirit. Just to give you a few examples of this. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The angel promises Mary, the virgin, mother of Christ, in this way, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
for this reason, the child to be born to you will be called holy. So at the point of conception, it's the work of the Spirit. By the way, it is the Father, Son, and Spirit, one God who is together accomplishing this work on our behalf. So the Spirit is working in Mary, over Mary, through Mary, in the conception of God the Son, in the womb of Mary. Then when Jesus is baptized, the Spirit descends on Jesus in the form of, or perhaps more accurately, as a dove. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by, by the devil, where he conquers the temptations the devil hurls at him. Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, that Jesus cast out these evil spirits, these demons, by, by the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 12, 28, that if I cast out demons by the power of the Spirit, the kingdom of God has come. What kingdom? The kingdom promised through the prophets. It's come. Why? Because the king is here. And where the king is, the kingdom is. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, Jesus is described as offering himself without blemish through the eternal spirit. His death on the cross is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So from the incarnation all the way to his exaltation, God the Son incarnate is empowered by the Spirit and this would characterize his reign, his rule as king. And then he goes on to say in verse three, Isaiah that is, that his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. That is, he will delight in obedience to God. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. In other words, appearances or stories shared by others will not dictate his decisions. His judgment will be righteous. In fact, righteousness will motivate all of his assessments as the king. Justice will undergird his every decision. He will not be unjustly partial toward the poor, nor will he be motivated by the approval or the applause of the rich. As verse five indicates, righteousness and faithfulness will be as a belt around his waist. That is, this king, this king Jesus will be so characterized by the attributes of righteousness and justice that it's as if he's wearing the attributes around himself. So just to summarize, the king's reign, his rule, is the exercise of righteousness and justice empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's Maybe a way we could summarize these verses. King Jesus would reign with the exercise of righteousness and justice empowered by the Holy Spirit. So at this point, let's, let's identify again those two points and then we'll move on to point three where we'll wrap, wrap things up together this, this Lord's Day morning. First, first we have seen that Jesus is both the shoot and the root of Jesse both descended from and sovereign Lord over and even source of Jesse and King David. Second, we have observed that Jesus' reign is the exercise of righteousness and justice empowered by the Spirit. He will always, as the King, operate through the power of the Spirit and he will do so with perfect righteousness and perfect justice there could never possibly be a better king than this. Finally, finally, let's look together at the king's kingdom. The king's kingdom, we could just say Jesus' kingdom at this point, right? Verses six through nine, and we won't be able to unpack all these details. We'll try to hit the broad portrait so that you get a sense of what's being promised. But let's read this, verses six, seven, eight, and nine. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf, and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. 
The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like an ox. How about that? And then the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Just no need for toys. Play with poisonous snakes from the womb. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Why? For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. couple things we need to mention here to get this portrait. This kingdom that Christ brings is characterized by peace and safety. You see that? Peace and safety. And the description even extends to the peaceful relationships between animals that once related to one another as predator and prey. Animals that once fled from other animals or animals that once chased other animals for food. These animals are dwelling together in harmony and safety with peace. So the wolf and the lamb now dwell together. The leopard now is resting alongside of the young goat. The lion lies with the calf and the calf is no longer fearing for its life. I remember when my kiddos were young, And I remember the home we lived in when we lost our first pet. And uh, it happened to be a cat. There are cat people in the room. There are not cat people in the room. (laughs) It's fine. We had a cat and we lived in the country. And by the way, if you live in the country, you know why you have a cat. Um, It was more utilitarian for me, but the kids grow fond of these animals. And I did too. I'm a bit of a softy as we have an animal for a period of time. But I remember the first lesson, the first lesson our children had with various animals, and we have, we've had many animals, um, with the death of a cat. I didn't have to gather my children up and say, you know, you're going to have to learn to be sad in response to that. Because that's how we respond to this. We respond with a sense of loss. And it's just the civilized thing to do. In fact, it occurred to me, I remember standing outside of our house and and realizing, you know, I never had to tell my child that there's something about this that shouldn't be. I never had to tell them this. They knew it intrinsically, intuitively. They knew, they couldn't put it to words, but they knew when when this cat was no longer alive, that they could see the cat. We won't get too descriptive here. The cat was no longer alive. They knew that something about this situation shouted, things are not the way they ought to be. And I think, in part, that's what Isaiah 11 is describing. It's describing a restoration to the way things ought to be, not just for humanity, but for all of creation. And the Apostle Paul, of course, talks in Romans chapter 8 about the groaning of all of creation, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God, that there's something wrong about this current state of existence and and that wrongness, that angst that we all feel is something that extends to one degree or another to all of creation. Every modicum of creation has been impacted to one degree or another by the presence of sin. And so Isaiah describes a restoration and a kingdom in which everything now finally will be harmonious, safe, peaceful. No more, no more experiences, mothers, where you wonder where your child is. That moment, you know, when, when your husband misplaced the child. I've never done that. I've heard of husbands doing it. But no more, because there's nothing that could harm them. 
Nothing in this kingdom, when this kingdom is finally realized and consummated, there is nothing throughout all the earth that will harm us. Amen. And I've betrayed this already, but I want to mention this to you. Christ's kingdom isn't just peaceful, harmonious, safe. It's universal. And this is, this is where verse 9 comes in. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. That is Mount Zion. But then notice there's just this, there's this shift, but it's not really a shift at all. Well, where is Mount Zion for all the earth? That is, God's kingdom will no longer be a, a small localized area. God's kingdom will extend throughout all the earth and really all the cosmos. Every modicum of creaturely existence will exist under the good, righteous, just, and life-giving reign of Jesus Christ. And the reason this universal kingdom is one of peace and safety is because everyone will know the Lord. Everyone will know the Lord. I remember there's a documentary that was produced a number of years ago and uh, it's about evangelicalism. I watched this. It's, it came out in the 90s or something. I won't mention it to you because I don't recommend it to everybody. Some things in it that I would take issue with. But I remember the documentary and they interviewed a group of young ladies that were at a Christian concert of, I don't know, there were probably 100, 150,000 people. It's one of those out, outside concerts. I actually attended one of them when I became a Christian um, that had 200,000 people at the concert. It's massive outdoor DFW, Dallas-Fort Worth concert. And this was one of those. And, and the one interviewing these, this group of teenage girls asked the question, you know, so what do you like about this as, as Christians? And they were, they were intrigued by this movement known as evangelicalism, particular portion of Christianity. And the young girls made this comment. That was fascinating. They said, you know, everywhere we go here, we can feel safe. And they said something like this, because everyone here knows the Lord. Now, that was naive. That was naive. But that is the Christian hope. What those young teenage girls were expressing was the way things will be. It's not that way yet. No, 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 it's not safe for teenage girls just to walk around and believe that everyone around them, even in Christian contexts, know the Lord and won't cause them harm. It's not the case. It should be the case. It's not the case. We still live in this tension. But that day is coming, friends. A day is coming. And that's the promise here. So to summarize our third point, Christ's kingdom is a universal kingdom of peace and safety throughout which everyone knows the Lord. Christ's kingdom, to say it again, is a universal kingdom of peace and safety throughout which everyone knows the Lord. Now, on the one hand, what we find in Isaiah 11 has been fulfilled through Christ's first coming. After all, Christ, the shoot and the root of Jesse, has come to establish the beginning of his kingdom. We read some passages that indicated this a few moments ago from the Gospel of Matthew. The kingdom of God has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, much of what we find in these verses is not yet fulfilled. Certainly not fully fulfilled. The wolf is not lying down with the lamb. And no, I don't think this is a kind of allegory for something that's happening today. I think this is complete, universal restoration of the cosmos. The infant cannot play safely next to the poisonous snake. Do not allow your infants to do this. Many things I don't know about parenting. I can tell you, don't do this. The day has not yet arrived. The earth is not yet full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now that's happening, one could argue, that's happening progressively or gradually, but it's not yet the case. 
are still so many islands, as it were, of people who do not yet know the Lord. And moreover, there are these areas where people once did know the Lord, and now there's a dearth of Christianity there. It's not the case yet. These things will not finally be realized until Christ's second coming. And so that's really what Advent's all about. It's also what Christmas is all about. We rejoice in Christ's first coming and the beginnings, the inauguration, we could say, if we want to use a big theological term that make us feel really intelligent, the inauguration of Christ's kingdom has come. It has begun. But it has not yet been fully realized or consummated. That's the tension in which we live as followers of Jesus Christ. And so, with that in mind, I do want to conclude, and uh, we're going to do this briefly with a few ways that this king, this king's reign, and this king's coming kingdom informs us this morning. Okay, so three ways that I think this text calls us into a life of obedience by the power of the Spirit of God. You can jot these down or you can just listen to these. First, First, I would exhort you, as I believe the Spirit of God is exhorting us through Isaiah 11, trust in the shoot and root of Jesse, Jesus Christ. Trust in the king who has fulfilled in part what we find in Isaiah chapter 11. Hope in the king who will come back and finish what he began. It's no accident that in baptism a moment ago, we asked these boys questions that dealt both with Christ's first coming and his second coming. And so I plead with you this morning that if you've not come to know this shoot from the stump of Jesse, this sign of new life that came from the lineage of David in fulfillment of prophecy, if you've not come to know the one who isn't simply the shoot from the lineage of David, but the root of the root that supports the lineage of David, the Lord who reigns over the lineage of David. If you've not come to know the one who is truly human, truly God, and one person who lived in perfect obedience, because you did not, I did not, and no other human being has or can, who died on the cross in our place and for our sins to pay the ransom for us, to rescue us out of sin, death, and hell, who was buried and who was raised in glorious power bodily from the dead on the third day, who appeared to many of his disciples, ascended back into heaven, promising to come back in the same way he ascended someday. If you've not come to know, trust, and treasure this King Jesus, I plead with you to do that this morning. Embrace Christ. Get a taste. Because that's really what happens it's really what happens as a Christian. You, you begin to, to get a taste of what it's like to live in this coming kingdom. There are these, these moments when the taste is stronger than at other moments. But we really are tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. We're tasting and seeing of a coming day that is in some ways invading the present. If you'd like to talk more about Christianity and learn more about this claim that that we make on account of the authority of Scripture as Christians. We would love to visit with you after the service. You can, as you exit these doors, take a left. And on the right-hand side out there, before you leave this building, there's a room called Crossroads. Go in there. There will be an elder in that room who would love to talk with you. You can ask questions. He would love to pray with you. We would love to come alongside of you and even you alongside of us as we seek to serve and treasure this King Jesus. Secondly, second way I think this text calls us to a life of faithfulness and obedience is in this way. Live in the power of the same spirit who empowered Jesus. Live in the power of the same spirit who empowered Jesus. So this promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit, of course, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. What we find in the New Testament, however, that as Christ's ministry was empowered by the spirit, then he sends the spirit in Acts chapter 2 which we'll get to soon. And the Spirit descends on God's people and now God's people live 
in the power of the same spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, which is precisely what the apostle Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Christian, then he who raised Christ from the dead also will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There are a couple things that that means. One, of course, it's final resurrection, but another is life begins now. It begins now. It begins by submission to Jesus Christ as a husband, as a father, as a wife, as a mother, as a friend, as a daughter, as an employer or an employee, as a student, as a teacher, as a grandparent, As a grandchild, it begins now as we learn to walk in the power of the Spirit of God, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good and experiencing the righteousness and the justice and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ given to us by the presence of the Holy Spirit. So that future life someday really does begin to invade the present through the power of the Spirit. So live in that power, submit to Christ, knowing that it's the Spirit working in you and through you. Third, third and finally, really finally this time, there are always a couple of finalies in a sermon. You'll get used to it if you're not already, okay? Third, reserve, reserve your ultimate hope for the second coming of Jesus. Reserve your ultimate hope for the second coming of Jesus. What I'm saying here is protect your hope. Don't misplace it. Don't place your ultimate hope in a political candidate who promises to be the savior of America who may or may not help America but could never be the savior of the world. Don't place your hope ultimately to winning a culture war and reestablishing a posture of authority as Christians. Maybe reestablishing some semblance of what has become popularly known as Christendom. I don't find this in Scripture. Give your hope finally to Christ's return. Reserve your hope ultimately. Look, we can hope in lesser things from time to time, right? Parents, certainly hope in the salvation of your children, but reserve ultimate hope. Husbands, wives, hope in the restoration of your marriage. But let it be a lesser hope. Reserve ultimate hope. Protect ultimate hope for the coming of Jesus Christ. Nothing in this life will finally satisfy you. And as C.S. Lewis once said, if I find that nothing in this life finally satisfies me. The only logical conclusion is that I was meant for another world. I think that's spot on. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not teaching a kind of escapism. Use your spheres of authority as Christians in the broader culture. Be Christians in your conduct. Be Christians in your relationships. Be Christians in your hospitality. Be Christians in your doctrine. Be Christians in your social media platforms. Be Christians in your kindness, in your love, in your charity. But do not place your ultimate hope in the fool's errand of rearranging chairs on the deck of the Titanic. Place your hope in the return of Christ. And then until Christ returns, let's spend, let's spend maybe less effort Less, not zero, but less effort 
establishing Christ's kingdom outside of us and more effort on being the sort of people who faithfully reflect the characteristics of the coming kingdom. Then we'll see that the world is impacted. Well, we began this morning by looking at how Isaiah 11 describes the king, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is both the shoot and the root of Jesse. Second, we found that Christ's reign is the exercise of righteousness and justice empowered by the Spirit. And then finally, we have seen that Christ's kingdom will be a universal kingdom of peace and safety throughout which everyone will know the Lord. Glory to God. One of the more popular hymns during this season is Joy to the World. It's written by Isaac Watts, and I don't know that Watts intended it to be a Christmas hymn. In fact, I don't think he did. It fits. On the one hand, the hymn describes the present, what's already true in some sense. But on the other hand, as you sing the hymn and as you listen to the words, you realize, but this isn't true in the ways it should be finally. And so the hymn isn't finally fulfilled until Christ returns. I want you to listen just to a few of these stanzas. That promise, both what Christ has accomplished highlight what he has accomplished, but also promise what he will accomplish when he returns. Listen to these words in conclusion. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. That is, has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's good news. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love and wonders of his love and wonders, wonders of his love. Lord, haste that day. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time we've had in your word, for the privilege of looking at Isaiah chapter 11 and the promises you make to us, fulfilled in part through the first coming of Jesus Christ, and yet not finally and fully realized until Jesus, your son, returns. So until that day, would you empower us Empower us to trust in Christ, the King who has come once and who will come again. Empower us to reserve, Father, in your goodness, in your mercy, our hope exclusively given to Jesus Christ. Empower us to live as citizens of the coming kingdom for the glory of your name. We pray all of this to you because you are good. Through Christ, our Savior, our Master, and our King, we pray. Amen.